pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us today so that we could uh, receive the food from your holy word. We cannot live apart from uh, your word. We cannot live a meaningful existence, and and, uh, that will be the case for both now and all of eternity. And so we praise you that you are speaking God, one who um, portrays and and passes on truth from your mind to ours, and we pray that you'd help us to grasp those those things today and, and apply them to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapters 3 through 11 today. Last week we looked at the first two chapters, and there we saw that God had made a perfect creation, that God exercised complete sovereignty and care over uh, a people living in perfect fellowship with God, and these people were stewards of God's earth. Uh, they served as His kings and priests, effectively, and enjoyed rest and peace as they um, displayed God's glory. So, let's actually start in chapter 1 and just show you um, what the state of creation was at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 31 God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So when God surveyed this earth, this creation that He had made, more than just the earth, obviously includes the the universe, but when He surveyed it all, He saw it, and behold, it was very good. But now turn over to chapter 6 and verse 5. Notice the status or the state of creation at this point. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So what a, what a change between 131 and 612. Something's happened where we've had this great reversal of very good to something very evil, such great wickedness and corruption, defiance against God. And, and so, so what's God going to do about it? What are we supposed to do about it? And those are the kinds of questions that we'll see answered here in chapters 3 through 11. So first, let's look at the historical context. Um, still the same as it was last week. Moses is still the writer of Genesis, and he knows these things because, not because he's witnessed them in person. Obviously, some of them he does in the Pentateuch. But here in Genesis, he, um, he's simply recounting what God had told him. And um, so, most likely, this is during the time of Israel's 40, year, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that God... Um, passes on this truth to Moses, but, but we'll get to that later. Uh, the textual or literary, literary context is that Genesis 1 and 2, we have this perfect creation that God had made. That everything was as God had originally intended it. And then when we get to chapter 3, we see this radical change that's taken place that's plunged this world into corruption that, that will, will last forever. It brings about death and disease and broken relationships, sin, uh, is disastrous. And then each week I want to just consider the overall biblical context as we look at each of these 
sections of Scripture through our, throughout our Old Testament survey and New Testament uh, overall biblical context. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is one book, so we shouldn't think of these as um, volumes or something or, or even individual standalone units. Um, they do have some uh, ability to stand on their own, but we also have to recognize that there's one author. We have many stories, many books, but one author. The author is God. And His ultimate purpose in history and the unifying center of all things is that God desires to glorify Himself through His creation. God wants to bring glory to His name or, or bring fame to His name because of His greatness and how He relates with His people. And this can be summed up in two well-known statements that we've even been seeing in Numbers in our study on Sunday mornings. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell among them. And the means of accomplishing this throughout the, the Bible is through this dispensational program where God is through different areas still accomplishing the same purpose, glorifying Himself, but, but doing it often in different ways and, and in different uh, using different kinds of... of um, eras and unfolding revelation as he does so. Alright, so one want to kind of see this in, in light of the bigger picture. Let's get into chapter three through 11, chapters 3 through 11. A thematic statement to summarize these chapters um, might sound like this. Mankind's first parents decided to set themselves up as equals to God and disobeyed Him. In doing so, they have incurred the just wrath of God and have expelled have been expelled from that pristine created order where they will no longer enjoy that perfect fellowship with Him, nor with each other, nor rest and peace on the earth. However, this is not the complete wrath that they deserve, for God has already established a way by which the curse of sin will be overturned and the universe recreated to its universal state. On the back of your handout, you have a, a summary outline uh, that you can... Um, Use if you find that to be helpful as you're reading through the scriptures, just to kind of see where the, the author there is going. We're not going to cover everything in these um, nine chapters, as we won't when we when we uh, when we go through each section of scripture. But I do want to look at some key passages. So first, let's turn to chapter two, verse fifteen. Here we want to see what what it was that God expected of of our parents, Adam and Eve. Would someone read verses 15 through 17? Um, so part of man's responsibility as rulers is to obey God. Here they have one specific prohibition, and what is it? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, what will happen? They will surely die. Now, two things to, um, to think about with regard to this tree. The tree was not a magical tree. That is that that, that once they ate of this magical fruit, they would suddenly know what good and evil was, whereas before they just kind of were moral, ig morally ignorant. You know, they just didn't quite get it. They lived in a state of blissful ignorance. It's not what this tree was about. 
Secondly, this tree was not placed in the garden as some kind of tease by God, as a cruel despot might do as a way of tempting them. But instead, this tree is a symbol. It was placed there in full sight for Adam and Eve so that they would have this great privilege and recognize the great freedoms that they had, right? the freedom to eat of any other tree that they wanted, but also to recognize that they are not God. right? God has the prerogative to choose what He pleases. They are not the High King. They are still His creatures. They have responsibility to to obey Him. They don't determine what is good and evil. They're still under His authority. And so this is actually what it means to know, right? It says there, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, or... Um, this idea of knowledge here is that um, it doesn't mean that they're informed about good and evil, but rather that they have the, the prerogative to determine what is good and evil. That they have the, 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 the ability to become the judge, have the final say. And this is why the tree is very appropriate. It's the, tr- it's the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God's effectively saying, I alone have the right to determine what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. And if you try to do it your own way, there are going to be consequences. All right, so there's kind of the standard. This is not something cruel by God in setting up this tree that they could not eat from. This was uh, a symbol of, of their relationship, their inferiority, their submission to Him as their God. Any questions on that? All right, chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 5. And would someone read that? Four and five, too, please. That's all right. Thanks. All right. So, here we have this great lie from the serpent, which is whom? Or which is who? Satan, the devil. Revelation 12:9 says the serpent is the devil, the great dragon. Um, he's a created angel that's now living in rebellion against God, and he would have us to think. He would have Adam and Eve to think. Uh, in his words, I am like God. I know what's good and evil. I know what's worthy and unworthy. I know what's valuable and and uh, worthless. I know what's worth loving and what's not. I know what's worth worshiping and what's not. I know what has the greatest weight of importance. I know what has the greatest consequence. It's arrogance on the part of this serpent. It's idolatrous. It's blasphemous. And notice Eve's confusion about what God has said because she actually misquotes God, doesn't she? 
in verse 3, she, she says at the end of the verse, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Right? So she, she actually says in his questioning, he's kind of um, getting her to a spot where she's rethinking what, what was said. And God never said not to touch it. He said simply not to eat it. Notice also the serpent's ability to create confusion about what God has said. He he's um, he appeals to uh, her on the basis of lack of clarity. Has God said really you can't eat from any tree from the garden? She said, well, no, there's one tree, but we can't even touch it. And then look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So Eve is the uh, the main character here in the story, but we can't forget that Adam was there, right there with her while it happened, and, and uh, they both fell for it. They had this idea that becoming like God was something good. Um, that that becoming like the, the, having the ability to determine. Remember that it was the knowledge of good and evil. So the the ability to determine what was good and evil was was appealing to them. And this is real treachery. They they put themselves in a position over God. God, I know you said not to do this, but we would rather do this because we think it'll be um, better for our well-being. But it didn't work out, did it? Verse seven says. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, immediately after sinning, they're not behaving like gods, like they thought they would be, but instead they're hiding. They're ashamed of themselves. Is as though they immediately recognize their foolishness, their evil. And suddenly that perfect fellowship and love and openness that they had with God and with each other is now gone. They hide from each other with the fig leaves and they hide from God uh, in verse 8. Let's jump ahead now to see what God is going to do to deal with these treasonous rebels. And in this sin, all three are culpable. Eve, Adam, and the serpent. So let's look at, and God's going to address each one of them, but let's look at them out of order. We'll start with um, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So no longer will childbearing be restful and peaceful and pleasant, um, but rather it's going to be painful. And in addition to that, the second curse we could say that came on the woman was that there was going to be a strained relationship with her husband, that she would have now these new desires to usurp his authority that she didn't have before. She loved her husband, she submitted to her husband, and now there's going to be this tension where she has a desire to, to take over, to, to, um, to be the authority rather than to, to submit. Eve is not destroyed on the spot, and so in that there is some mercy by God. But the marriage life and motherhood is not going to be ideal like it used to be. It's still going to be there. She's still going to have the, the ability to marry. She's still going to have the ability to have children, but it's, it's going to be strained. It's going to be difficult. And then for Adam, 
verses 17 to 19. Then uh, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants from the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So just as the woman, her childbearing and her marriage would no longer be restful and peaceful, so with the man, um, his work, his labor would no longer be restful and peaceful. No longer would it be uh, him controlling his environment, but instead the work was going to be done in pain. With the sweat of his brow, things would be cultivated. But again, we have grace that God's still allowing them to live. They're not wiped out completely. God had every right to do that because of their sin. Even though the earth's going to be full of natural catastrophes and work's going to be hard, God has not driven them out. Uh, God has not completely eliminated them from existence. Instead, He's driven them out of His presence and made physical life difficult. Um, At the end of the verse 19, we also see that Um, this promise that God had made, right? Don't eat from the tree or else you will surely die. Now here's the first hint that man's going to die. Um, The assumption is that, or the implication is that if they hadn't sinned, then they would live forever. There'd be no reason for them to die. But their sin has brought about death upon all mankind so that creation is now being in a way uncreated. It's going back to where it it came from. It's, It's... it's being destroyed. The, the man that was created is now going to die. Everything dies. That's a fact. I mean, everything that's created has an end. And that's not the end of the story, though, because look back at verses 14 and 15. Here God talks to the devil, and it's here that we see the ultimate solution to our, our circumstances, our plight. And this is the beginning of the gospel, verse, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, and and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. But I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God says that He's putting enmity or hostility... um, Three levels of enmity here. First is enmity between whom and whom. Verse 15. Okay, between the devil and the woman. Or you could say the serpent or Satan and the woman. That's your first blank. Between the devil and the woman. What does this mean? Well, it means that Satan and the human race are enemies. Right now, this doesn't sound like a great plan of redemption to us. I mean, the first thing that God does is says, you're going to be an enemy with Satan. But consider the alternative. The alternative would be to be friends with Satan and therefore permanent enemies of God. So what God is saying here is that humanity still belongs to Him and He's going to work to restore them to Himself. Even though that man has stepped outside of God's desires and have temporarily made themselves an enemy of his, God says, I'm going to bring you back so that now for the rest of your 
life on this earth, you're going to be an enemy of Satan. They still belong to God. So this is a good thing because to be an enemy of God's enemy is a good thing. Right? We have enemies with God's enemy, who is Satan. So that's a good thing because God's working to restore us to Himself. The second level of enmity is what? In verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and then what? Okay, so his his seed and her seed. So his seed is talking to Satan here. So Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. Someone look up John 8:44 for me and read that in just a second. Bill. Okay. So what does this mean that Satan's offsprings or the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring are going to be enemies? Does that mean that children or snakes are not going to get along very well? Well, no, that's not it's actually a pronouncement that humanity will be divided into two camps. Right? There's going to be the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. We all have our physical descendancy from Eve, since she's the first mother of everyone. But some of her physical descendants will be spiritual descendants of Satan. Okay? Actually, all of us are born that way. We're all born spiritual descendants of Satan. And so... Uh, the only thing that can happen... In fact, let's read this verse here, John 8:44, and see how Jesus uses this idea. I think what he draws from Genesis 3:15. All right, so here he's talking to his contemporaries, um, the the Pharisees, and he's saying, listen, you religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. So you're part of the seed of Satan. In John's epistle, he says it more succinctly, 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So someone who goes on practicing their sin is a child of the devil. Okay, not that they don't have their physical descendancy from Eve, but, but there's a difference. Those who, as a lifestyle, posture themselves as enemies of God and live intentionally sin-filled lives are the seed of the serpent. Well, then who are the seed of the woman? Verse 15 it basically implies that that's the rest of humanity. Those who do not set themselves up in opposition to God and and as we'll find out later in the story of the Bible, that those who put their faith and repentance in God's promised Redeemer. So what, what God is saying is that there's going to be two groups that, that are going to be on the earth at all times. There's going to be a group of people who are of their father, the devil, and who are of their mother, Eve. Um, they, and these two will be in opposition against one another that these two groups are irreconcilable. You can't, be a gr- you can't be both of them. You have to be one or the other. Jesus says in John fifteen nineteen, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. And then in First John three thirteen, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Now, the third level of enmity here in verse 15 
uh, ends by saying, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So suddenly God's not talking about a group of people, you know, between Eve and the devil, between Eve's offspring and the devil's offsprings, but now he's talking about one descendant who will deliver the fatal blow to the devil. So this is between Eve's descendant, Eve's one descendant, could capitalize the, 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 the word one, one descendant and the devil. <clears throat> you see that there in verse 15? He shall bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. So out of this larger group of Eve's offspring will come one descendant who will, who will, um, who will engage in this battle against Satan's offspring, Satan and his offspring. And he's not going to come out of the battle undamaged, right? He's going to be bruised on the heel. It's not a fatal wound like Satan's going to be, right? Satan's is going to be, he's going to be crushed in his head. And so this is this one descendant of Eve, this par excellence descendants who will be wounded in his victorious battle over evil in the universe. This is, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I just read uh, from 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But listen to the rest of it. The reason the Son of God has appeared in this world was to destroy the works of the devil. That's first, That's Genesis 3.15. That's what it's talking about, right? That there is this, this um, opposition that's going on against the people of God and this one descendant who will come from the people of God uh, will actually destroy the devil. And there are a number of other verses that we could um, to look at if you... See, I don't have those on your handout, so I'll, I can give them to you if you'd like to look them up. John 12, 31 to 33. John 12, 31 to 33. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And then Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So the great problem that has occurred from creation to, um, to basically... Um, just right after when the first sin committed, or really till today, is this problem of sin. Adam and Eve opened the door to it, they embraced it, and the result is death. And that's why Jesus came to the earth. Because by His death, He bears the wrath of God upon His shoulders in our place. He purchases forgiveness for us so that all the legal demands of God's justice are met so that God can be both the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. All right. Any questions on chapter 3? All right, so there we have the foundation, really, for the rest of the Bible. That helps explain, really, a lot of what, what's in the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible is an outworking of Genesis 3.15. That there are going to be, as we go through the Scriptures, these three levels of enmity... Eve and Satan, Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring, and then Eve's one descendant, Jesus, and Satan himself. <clears throat> In the very next chapter, we see Cain killing Abel. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, um, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So, Think about this from the perspective of Eve. What's going on? God promised that I, there would be a seed that would crush this serpent, and now what's happening? 
her own two sons are warring against each other, or at least one is warring against the other, and and one kills the other. And so now what's happened to her seed of the woman who is supposed to crush the head of the serpent? Is the godly line gone? Well, no, in verses 25 and 26, we she has another son who will carry forward the 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 line that will someday lead to the birth of the Savior. His name is Seth. But as the story continues, we are again and again brought to wonder, will Satan be able to extinguish the line? Or will the promise of God be fulfilled? And there are several times where it looks like it's going to be bleak. Like, how can this possibly happen that a Messiah is going to be born through this line? It looks like Satan's going to win. Consider the flood, right? Satan was able to corrupt humanity enough, but did he corrupt all of humanity? No, God preserved this one family who was willing to be delivered by grace. And then Abraham, what about him? The line was supposed to go through him, and yet his wife was barren. And so we ask the question again, will the, will the line be stopped with the barrenness of Sarah? And the answer is no. God's going to provide a son when they're in their 90s. What about the famine in Genesis 39? What about powerful Egypt in the next generation? You know, is Pharaoh going to extinguish the line? What about David's line? The one seed is promised to come through David's line, which, you know, David fights Goliath. We're wondering if he's going to survive there. And then later on, the Babylonian captivity, all these descendants of David look like they're going to be completely wiped out. And so over time, Satan is continually working to extinguish the people of God, the one through whom the Messiah would come. And even when Christ is born, he tries to kill him but he's unsuccessful. And Christ comes, dies on the cross, and defeats sin on the cross, and in the second coming, he will have the final victory over death. All right. Any questions on chapter 4? All right, we need to keep moving. Chapter 5, we have this continual refrain that um, hangs over the air like stale breath in a room with no air movement. It is this refrain that's repeated over and over again, and it is, and he died. So we have a genealogy that doesn't seem all that exciting, but what it tells us is there's something going on. This refrain comes like a constant drumbeat, and he died, and he died, and he died. That those who are of the seed of the woman cannot live forever in their current state. No matter how godly they are, they're still sinners, and all of us are worthy of death. And that's what happens. Of course, you do have some hope in that chapter because you have Enoch who did not die. He he lives and that kind of gives us this glimmer of of hope, this silver lining that something good's going to come through this human race. He's not the Messiah, but there will come a Messiah. In chapter 6 through 9, chapter 6 we see more of mankind's further and further descent into depravity. Um, you know, it began in chapter 3 and then this great violent murder in chapter 4 and man continues to rot in their current state. They become more and more corrupt as as I read earlier in chapter 6 verse 5 that the wickedness and treachery is only evil all the time. And notice in verse 7, chapter 6 verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them. Um, 
not only mankind that he is destroying here, but he's also destroying the animals as well. And how will this destruction come? Well, it comes through this great flood, as we know. It's judgment by flood where God's kind of undoing what he did in creation, starting over again. Um, so we have this problem. I mean, it's only about a thousand years removed from the time that God had initially created the world, and now it's, it's com- become almost completely corrupt. How is this going to continue? I mean, if God starts over with Noah's family, how long is that going to go before it becomes corrupt again? And um, how, how is the seed ever going to come from such a corrupt human race? And the fact is that God has to overcome this sin of mankind with grace and mercy, and that's exactly what He does. The grace is seen in the flood when He provides a, a means of escape for those who will trust in Him. Um, and, and certainly throughout human history, He provides those kinds of escape, not from physical death, death necessarily, but from the just wrath of God. Um, all right. Let me, um, let me just talk briefly about uh, typology. I mean, why do we need to go into detail about the judgment? I mean, we have several chapters here, chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, all about the flood. Why go into so much detail about this de- destruction that took place? Um, and this brings us to the idea of typology that we're going to see in lo- a lot of sp- spots in the Old Testament and then fulfillments in the New Testament. Typology is this, that God in His providence and sovereignty has done things in the Old Testament that foreshadow something greater in the future. <clears throat> so God's done something in the Old Testament that that it becomes a picture of something that's going to take place in the future. Most often this typology is um, fulfilled or exemplified in the best way in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we'll see a number of these things, but <clears throat> for right now we need to see the flood narrative this uncreating and recreating is a picture of a future, greater, cataclysmic undoing of the universe that's going to take place. In other words, this flood pictures some greater event that's going to happen in the future. And that's not going to be a destruction of the world by water, but instead by fire. So turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, uh, just so we get a sense of this kind of typology that we'll, we'll come across. That doesn't mean we need to read into everything in the Old Testament. Typology does not mean we read into everything and try to find the hidden meaning of what it, you know, what it, how it, it shows itself in the, the New Testament. But what it does mean is that um, when the New Testament clearly says this is, you know, Jesus is the temple of the living God or you know, really, believers, we become a temple of the living God. When it says that, then then we should see the connection. Not in every point, you know, not that people have to come to us in order to confess their sins like the Old Testament temple was used. Um, that's not what it means. But, but there are some clear points of connection that we ought to see in the New Testament when, when the New Testament explains it. So, let's look at um, 2 Peter chapter 3. What someone... Re- 
read uh, verses 5 through 7. Can you skip down to verse 11 and read through verse 13? Alright, so Noah's flood was a real judgment. It was a but but it also served as a typology, a picture of a greater judgment that still will come on this earth. And in a similar way that those who opposed God, those who didn't accept his means of deliverance, will be destroyed. The same thing is true in this future judgment, that, that there's going to be a judgment on the whole earth, and those who reject the means of of escape, the the means of deliverance, they will be destroyed. There will be a greater disaster even than the flood. All right. Any questions on that? All right. Let's get to chapter 11 quickly and then see if we can um, make some application for ourselves. One final theme we want to look at is just Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Um, that mankind, again, is rebelling against God and, and God will, again, execute judgment on them. But again, His judgment is mixed with grace. Verse 4 reads, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower, whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So here, mankind wants to make a name for whom? For themselves. Right. Rather than their job as God's creation was to deflect or to spread the fame of His glory. That was the, their goal. God said, um, rule over the, the world as I would rule over it. Instead, they want, to, they want to make a name for themselves. They don't want to scatter over the whole earth. And, they, they don't, um, and, and God had commanded that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they don't want to do that. They want to stay all in one place. They don't want to spread out. And again, God sees this as sin. And He he comes down and confuses their language. In verses 7 and 8, they, He confuses their language. They are made in His image and that they can have intelligible communication. And um, and God confuses them. And, and so they are effectively compelled to, to move across the face of the earth like God had said. Um, all right, let's think about some application here. Four of them. Number one. 
find it here. Number one, one thing that we should struck, be struck by in these nine chapters is the horror of sin. That that sometimes we think too little of our sin. That we've not considered the the utter evil and rebellion that it is against God. Instead, we like to call our sins. We we like to um, soften the 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 name of our sin. We call it mistake or an error or a mess up or something like that. Instead, what we need to call it is what what God sees it as, and that is treason. It is defiance against God. I mean, think about it. We have the all-powerful, all-creative, self-sufficient God who designed this whole system and everything that, that exists was made by God. And then we have us, creatures, who are completely dependent on Him, who are made from dust. We're assigned with the task of, of imaging His glory, His perfection, His beauty and love assigned with bringing justice and rule, we have a, a, a responsibility to point back to Him. And instead we've said, no thank you, I'm good as I am, I'll do it my way. I will rule my life. I, will, um, I, I want to be the one who determines good and evil. Everything that we do in the time that we wake up in the morning and even before, um, is controlled by a, a sovereign God who who has made us and who sustains us. And when we ignore that and live life apart from His rule, apart from what He desires of us, we're effectively saying, I am like God. I know good and evil. You know, I, I can live my life my way. I can respond to my parents or my spouse the way I want to respond. I can think what I want to think about um other people, I know what's good and what's evil. Who needs God when I have me? And what we need to remember is that we are turning away from what we were intended to do, that we are made to image God's glory and we have drawn the attention, instead of the attention deflected from us to God and His greatness, we've drawn the attention back to us as if we're better than God, if we're greater being than He. And yet, even when we've fallen into sin, God still allows us uh, mercy. We're still made in His image. We don't lose His image. And um, and yet, we often misrepresent God. We we are horrific in our sin. Secondly, it leads us uh, to um, the point, I think, of Second Peter, of that passage we looked at. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? And the answer was that we ought to live holy and godly lives. And so, really, Genesis 3-11 through 11 is a call to holiness. That we only cause greater problems for ourselves and the rest of the universe when we sin against God. And so we ought to be serious about holiness. Thirdly, no matter how righteous a life we lead, we will never live up to God's standard of holiness. We are all sinners. We all need this seed to come and, and, uh, and be our deliverer. And so we ought to put our whole confidence in Christ, believe in Him, repent of our sins, and trust in His death and resurrection. And then finally, we need to follow Christ by hearing and obeying the Word of God. The fall and its effects um, remind us that, that we do damage to ourselves when we fail to listen to God, when we, in either ignorance or defiance, 
confusion, we reject God's Word. And so we need to be dead serious about God's Word, looking at it, understanding it, obeying it, putting it into practice. All right, any questions on that? Anything we talked about today? All right, this is supposed to be Old Testament survey, and so far we haven't made it very far, but we'll pick up speed next week and then the week after um, finish Genesis next week. So I look forward to doing that with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of our sin and um, and how it it um, alienates us from you and Lord how how often we minimize our own sin help us not to do that but to take it seriously and to recognize your great grace and allowing us to come back to you and be restored thank you for Jesus Christ and uh, for his victory over Satan and we look forward to the day when that victory is final we pray for your help now in this service to come in Jesus name Amen